Hi everyone, I'm Kara Scott and welcome to this episode of The Heart of Poker sponsored by 888 Poker, a podcast that aims to introduce all of us to the players that we already know so well, but in a totally new way. Now we don't do poker strategy here. This is about getting to know the people behind the cards. And if this is the first time that you're listening, first of all, welcome and thank you. Um, I'm using a modified set of some questions developed by psychologists 25 years ago to see if they could get total strangers to ask them of each other and then fall in love. Now I've shortened the list because of time constraints and I've updated some of them, but otherwise these are the questions that they came up with to try to find a shortcut to get to know someone on a deeper level, but fast. My guest today is Jennifer Shahade, well-known and incredibly influential as a player and a broadcaster in both the worlds of poker and chess. She has championed and supported women in poker and women and girls in chess with a force that I truly admire. Now, it would take way too long to list all of the accolades and projects for this genuinely impressive person, but it is my podcast, so I kind of do what I want, and I'm going to give you some of the headlines anyways. Jennifer has been a two-time women's chess champion, a published author, a speaker, a streamer. She's been a poker coach. She's a multi-award winning podcaster in both chess and poker. She's the program director at US Chess Women, and she's the host for the US Chess Championships. So I don't think she sleeps. Do you sleep? How do you find time to do all of these things? And welcome. Thank you so much, Kara, for having me on your podcast. <laughs> um, I. I'm really excited to be on the Heart of Poker. And yeah, I guess I I, I do actually sleep quite a lot, but I don't, <laughs> I don't, maybe I don't do a, a lot else but sleep and work and hang out with my, my toddler. Well, he's not even a toddler anymore. He's three and a half. So my yeah. little boy. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Your poker podcast, The Grid, is such an innovative idea, interviewing people about one specific hand from the grid of possible hands, and then using that as a jumping off point to learn about the person. It's, um, it's pretty ingenious. How did you come up with that? You know, I think at the time people were, um, giving like game theory, a lot of flack and the people who studied it for being like heartless robots who took all the soul and fun <laughs> out of poker. And well, sure, that might be true in some cases. To me, it was like very, it gave me this negative reaction because I love math and mm. I just really wish that I studied more math as a kid. So I, or as like a teen and a kid. And so to me, it was like the mo equilibrium and studying that stuff was actually kind of beautiful. So um, this was kind of my answer because I think what I just described to you could come off as like boring to people, whereas actually being like, no, I, I took the fact that I think this and created this like combination <laughs> of art and math and made a podcast out of it. Like that, mm. that's something everyone can enjoy, whether you agree with my thesis or not. <laughs> well, there was also an article on Poker News a while back, um, the lessons that you'd learned through creating the grid. And you know, I found it incredibly helpful. This is the first podcast that I've done in over a decade. So uh, reading that was really enlightening for me. And it kind of turned on a few lights that I didn't even know were there. Uh, you have such a clear way of looking at things. You communicate so well, you communicate the information that you parse so quickly. I can tell it's very quick in your head. Um, and you've worked in so many different formats. So which one is the most fulfilling for you personally? Which format do you like? You mean from a media perspective? Yeah, or even in person, because you've done, you know, in-person coaching, you've done television, you've done podcasting, you're a writer, like, which of those do you find the most fulfilling? I think writing is probably number one. And that mm. said, I think that podcasting takes elements of writing because you, you know, you prepare your intro and some of the questions, it's this like kind of merge between preparation and improvisation, which mm. sounds a lot like poker, doesn't it? 
<laughs> it does. Have you ever done comedy improv? Oh God, no. I mean, no? one time with my friend's 40th, I, 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 uh, we went all run around and I did a little, we all did like a one minute comedy routine. I actually did pretty uh-huh. well. I think I bragged about it to Jamie afterwards. <laughs> I killed it in my small group of friends while we were all drunk. <laughs> but it killed, you know, if it kills, it kills. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to get started. The format is the same as it usually is. We have three sets of questions. They get progressively more personal as we go on. We start pretty easy. Um, And since this is a really strange time period we're living in, I'm going to start by asking you what the quarantine and the virus situation has been like for you. Where are you? What has been your experience? I'm in Philadelphia and yeah, I'm a, I'm, I normally travel so much. So it's a major Mm. change. It's a major change for me. Um, You know, mostly it's, it's very difficult. It's very terrible because, you know, there's, so much death and illness and Mm. it like normally you're used to getting bad news from people once in a while and just Mm. this whole period is you know increase the frequency of Mm -hmm. of of bad news sad news from people that I love and care about so it's very difficult now professionally I think I've had a lot easier than other people in fact in one of you know my lifelong passions that I've been promoting for so many years Chas is actually experiencing like a boom period that, you know, is almost reminiscent of like the poker boom. Mm. So that's, you know, it's always hard for me because I, because I get interviewed about it a lot recently. And I'm like, it's difficult for me to say it's great to see because I know mm. that it's connected to this like horror show that I would never wish on our world. Yeah. But it, it's true that chess is experiencing a massive resurgence. And so I'm keeping very busy between that and poker, which is mm-hmm. of course also busy right now. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that because I have, I have a real struggle with trying to find positives in the situation that we're all in, but then also just being really aware of all the massive negatives. Like a friend of mine just lost her father and she couldn't go and you know they couldn't have a funeral and now her mother's sick as well and she can't see her. And that's awful. And we have a lot of friends, unfortunately, here in Italy who've lost people. And um, yeah, but, and to be at the same time going like, this has now been five months of our lives. Where, where can we find like some kind of positive to take out of it? Do you struggle with that dichotomy? Yeah, definitely. It's like you have to keep two things in your head that in order for us to, you know, find the best possible outcomes and, mm. you know, come out um, in with a better world, you have to kind of look for some positives, but then you mm. also don't want to obscure the fact that it's an absolutely horrible year and I yeah. still wish it had never happened. No, but you know, yeah, I just don't think you can really obscure that. But then, yeah, you Mm -hmm. you know, we do have to think about well, there's all sorts of technologies that people have been forced to to learn, and you know, Mm -hmm. maybe maybe some some uh, some positives or what will come like very, but those are like micro positives, right? From the big, I think that's what it is. Like from the big picture, um, there's a lot of death and destruction and sadness and job loss and economic Mm. devastation. But then from like the little picture, and that's kind of what I was talking about with chess, like from the the little micro lens, it's like, yeah, chess is more popular than ever. And chess players are getting celebrated and getting sponsorships. Mm. So I I think it's just like that macro lens, very bad and micro lens. There are little <laughs> glimmers of, of, of great things that are happening all over. Mm-hmm. Well, considering that you are such a busy person and you always have so many projects on the go, what would be a perfect day for you? 
Um, um, wow. Great question. Yeah. A perfect day for me would involve obviously spending time with my family, preferably <laughs> like baking part of the huh. day and then maybe going to like do something outside, like, um, go to the park and like run around, have a picnic. I think the combination of like being inside and outside and then, um, some of the things, of course, I really miss, um, you know, hanging out with friends and um, yeah. getting a few drinks. Yeah, uh, it would it would it would contain all of those elements, though. Mm-hmm. Dessert, wine, um, time with family, <laughs> time outside. <laughs> yeah, it's funny for me. A lot of the like this question is clearly from the psychological study. It's one of the first ones that they open with, and for me, my idea of a perfect day would have been very different. I think maybe not very different, but it would have been different, significantly different five months ago before this all happened, you know, probably would have had a lot more kind of exciting things in it and, you know, travel or whatever. But now again, I like you, I think a lot would be family. I'd see my family in Canada. I would, you know, go to one of my favorite restaurants and just sit outside and have drinks with friends or something kind of simple. And maybe that is part of the, the micro good is, you know, a return to maybe smaller things that are more simple pleasures. I don't know if that's, if that's your take on it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think I've always liked simple pleasures, but Mm. you know, I do like, I mean, yeah, I would, I would love to play in, in, um, play in a live poker tournament again as well, but it's hard for me to put that in a perfect day because that's like the whole day. (laughs) Like the entire day, especially if you do well, So then where am I going to fit in like the baking cookies with my son and the getting, eating outside all fresco with a glass of white wine. I want to play like a four hour turbo poker tournament. That's that (laughs) today. Then I'll win it and, and go on to have like some wine with friends. That's actually, that was my dream last night. I played four turbos and I won the first three and then I woke up in the fourth and I was just like, that was amazing. That is just a really great day. So yeah, maybe drinks with friends isn't as actually as high on my list as I think it is. Maybe it is actually playing poker at this point. I don't know. (laughs) All right. Well, the next question is a little bit more open-ended. It's take four minutes and tell me your life story in as much detail as possible. Like, you know, where were you born? Where have you lived? What kind of student were you? Just give me the give me the cliff notes of of you. Oh wow! Well, I was born in Philadelphia, and um, yeah, they they put me in the uh, the NICU, but I think it might have been a mistake because my mom oh. always told me about that period that it was like awkward for her because I looked like a giant compared to the other um, babies oh. in the room, and um, so yeah, I turned out okay. Uh, that must have been really harrowing then, mm-hmm. um, and I. I had a, I had a very urban, happy childhood. You know, we didn't even have a car when, when I was growing up. So everything I did was in the city. I went to, um, public schools. Philadelphia is a really beautiful city to grow up in. And Mm -hmm. I, of course, I'm very well known for chess and I, I learned how to play when I was very young, probably five or six. Uh, but I didn't really get super into it. In fact, my learning curve was a little um, slow, especially compared to my brother and my father. So mm-hmm. I I was, I played in a tournament like in Disneyland. I'll always remember I was in like third grade and I won my first game. Oh. Disneyland, the one, I think, no, Disney World is the one in, in Florida. So the one in Florida. <laughs> and um, the, the, 
the experiencing after that was not though like a, a rocket up to the top. I actually quit for a few years in junior high school and hmm. got into like more creative endeavors like writing and acting. And then somehow I had some traumatic experiences in that, in that um, I was bullied a lot in an oh. acting camp that I went to as an eighth grader. And after that, I just kind of fell back into chess and really fell in love with it. And that um, significantly changed my my life and my direction in that I traveled all over the world, became a champion, um, and um, really just fell in love with the uh, the art of the game and of, with winning as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that takes me to, um, I guess, around college. At, although I was, that, it, it kind of... They commingled like my chess career and my like scholastic life and college life. So I went to New York, New York University. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually was one of those people who the first time I went to New York, I just was like, okay, I'm going to live here one day. It's (laughs) there's a certain type of person who that happens to like you step foot in that city and you're just like, okay, I'm going to absolutely live here for part of my life. Um, there's a wonderful story by a New Yorker magazine writer who just recently passed, Lillian Ross, The Yellow Bus, which describes mm-hmm. that experience for uh, a group of rural American high school students coming to New York and the ones who just like were just like me must live here. Huh. <laughs> and so I lived there. I lived there for about eight years for college and after, and then I moved back to Philadelphia, which is actually quite close to New York City. Mm-hmm. And um, some sometime in my um, late twenties, I I got really into poker. Um, again, my family also super into games, mm-hmm. and yeah, I I uh, ha- since then I've been kind of merging my passions for creativity, chess, and poker. I mean, I feel like this is more of like a, a career resume, um, maybe <laughs> personal stuff, like. Well, it's really whatever you want to talk about. Although I am curious to know if your experience of living in New York lived up to the that feeling, that initial feeling you had about it the first time you stepped foot in it. Yes, it did. Especially it did. wow, for a while. I mean, I think in the beginning I was a little young. Um, I graduated high school at seventeen, which I think is a bit young these days. Most people are eighteen or even nineteen, mm-hmm. um, and so I literally couldn't legally drink for the entire or get into not, not just about <laughs> drinking it's like getting into the bars and the parties and stuff like yeah. legally like I couldn't until I was like a senior no that doesn't mean that I didn't but it's just kind of a, <laughs> a funny it's kind of a funny thing and um yeah uh, socially I think I struggled for a little while I wasn't mm-hmm. like the best at making friends but somehow like towards the end uh, maybe like a junior senior year of college I I really started to, to blossom in that way. And I lived in, in Brooklyn and made a lot of friends from mm. both like that kind of Brooklyn art, artistic community as well as NYU. And then also throw in my like chess world friends. Mm. So, oh, it was, it was phenomenal. I, I have what very, very good I bet. Uh, what do you think it was that kind of changed that for you when you kind of started making those friends? Was it just the different groups that you were looking at people in or was it something about yourself or, or what? Um, you mean why it became easier yeah. for me to make friends? Yeah. Huh. Why at that point do you think? Because um, I had, I struggled in university making friends myself. So, and it's something I've always been fascinated about with people who are so friendly and so, you know, likable, which you are both. <laughs> I think it's very, it's like the first one is always the hardest. 
Like the, there's True. actually the first million is the hardest, right? <laughs> first friend is always the hardest, but like once you meet friend one, then you often meet yeah. friend two, three, four, and five because mm-hmm. they like introduce you to somebody, and then you also have like a buddy, like a partner that like you can go to stuff with and meet more people and play off of. True. I've experienced yeah. that in a lot of careers. Same thing in poker. I feel like mm-hmm. there was a time where I just knew no one and had no friends except like the people that I already knew from chess, and then like. It went from that to like basically knowing everyone. There was, there's like, it, it jumps very quickly. <laughs> okay. Well, what would the person who knows you best say is your most annoying habit? I'm guessing that's probably going to be your husband, but maybe I'm wrong. Oh, um, my most annoying habit. Oh, gosh. <laughs> what would he say is my most annoying habit? Um, probably something related to like, obsessive anxiety about stuff and then you know how you're when you're with your partner you obviously share that more than with other Mm -hmm. people so just like sometimes they just get fixated on something small that is irritating and (laughs) it it spirals into some and then you realize you just wasted like an hour that you could have been doing something amazing um complaining (laughs) about some email that really didn't matter you know Mm -hmm. that uh sometimes it's cathartic but I feel that it's cathartic for like five minutes and it's about like pulling the plug and Right. And back into something more, more viable. So yeah, that, mm-hmm. that, um, like obsessive fixating on some minor problem, which I, I generally like, it's, it, I feel like it's important for me not to do that, but I'm like, I'm victim to it. Um, mm-hmm. as for sure, I'm victim to it and I try to stop, but I'm sure that would be one of the annoying things. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely fall prey to that myself. My um, my first poker coach ever was a really good friend of mine, Nick, and he used to tell me that I was only allowed to talk about the end of a tournament and what happened in a tournament for the length it took to take a uh, length of time it took to take a, a drink, and that was it. <laughs> we would have one drink, and I'd be allowed to like bitch about whatever happened in the tournament, and that was it. And I'd have to move on. And I kind of have tried to yeah <laughs> put that into my life a little bit. So. You know, like you say, sometimes five minutes of fixation is a healthy thing and maybe an hour and a half is not. I don't know. Although maybe thinking about things in depth is good as well. I don't want to be negative about this. So let's bring this back up. Beat, the next question is, for what in life do you feel the most grateful? Oh, well, definitely for my my family and mm-hmm. my health. Sorry, boring. <laughs> but no, yeah. that's, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, by the way, I'm I'm a huge fan of the, the show and the structure. So I think it's funny because a lot of your guests, um, they come on because I've listened to, I think, all of them or definitely oh, like, thank I, you. I don't know, this might be like, I might have missed like one, but I've definitely listened to almost all of them. And I feel like there's a large number of guests who come on and say, I don't know the concept, but I'm super excited <laughs> to try it out. And that doesn't describe me. Like I, I am absolutely um, intrigued by the whole concept of, you know, short circuiting intimacy. And mm-hmm. I find this, you know, execution of it really interesting. And I also think like with all the advances that we're making in AI, I'm mm-hmm. excited to see, um, yeah, like whether you could take this even further and that um, you could, you know, get, you know, data mine. It sounds really invasive, but like, you know, with the willing participation <laughs> subjects, if you could really try to data mine successful relationships and, you know, try mm-hmm. to increase the chances for everybody to have them. 
Yeah, I've always found that really fascinating. Any kind of psychological studies looking at which relationships make it and which don't. And the idea, I think a lot of them come down to conflict and how you both initiate conflict and resolve conflict, which I, I find fascinating. And I kind of watch myself when I'm doing it sometimes and I'm like, yeah, that's bad. That's really bad. Like not, um, you know, not belittling people, obviously, you know, relationships where people build each other up, tend to work. Um, yeah. Well, what is your relationship style? Do you think as a partner? Well, um, I've been in my current relationship with my husband for such a long time. It's kind of hard to rem- I haven't had that many serious relationships because, mm-hmm. um, probably like two, two or three. Um, yeah, maybe about three. Mm-hmm. Um, and can you, can, what do you mean by my relationship? <laughs> <laughs> well, what kind of partner do you would you, how would you describe yourself as a partner? Like, awesome. Are you... I'm great. <laughs> I'm amazing. <laughs> Very yeah, right. Very are lovely. Like, are you a nurturer or are you a pusher? Like, do you push a lot to try to help someone kind of achieve their best? Or are you a nurturer? Because I think I tend to be a bit more of a nurturer than a pusher. And I think that's a yeah. flaw. For me, I think it's I make it too easy for people to just get really comfortable. Oh, <laughs> more of a not do everything that they want to do. Yeah, maybe more of a nurturer than a pusher. Yes, because mm-hmm. I, I I think like I'm I'm used to being motivated. Even though my my parents introduced me into like so many amazing things. Like my mom was a chemist and a writer, and my dad was a chess player. Wow. He is a chess player and a poker player. I I feel like I they were really good about like stepping back and not pushing me. Like, so mm-hmm. I always consider like motivation to come so much from yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that I also execute that in my relationships. Hmm. That actually leads into the next question really well. Um, it's a bit more personal now. So if you could change anything about the way that you were raised, what would it be? Well, I think um, I've always been really um, – unmusical but I part of me I'm just I'm just like endlessly curious if that's because I didn't really have much of a musical background either at school or at home mm-hmm. and I I wish that I had like learned an instrument and I know that like mm-hmm. if I were a kid and my parents pushed that on me I probably would be like no I want to like play chess or go to acting camp but now looking back on it I'm like I just wish, wish I knew more about that world because it seems like something that I would love like that kind of merging of aesthetics and mathematics Mm -hmm. and precision. And like, I'm good at, I think one of the reasons I became a a really good chess player is that I feel like I'm good at repetition. If I'm really committed to something, I'm like, okay, with just doing something boring over and over and over again. And Mm -hmm. that seems like a quality that would really help you to be successful in music. Yeah. You'd be doing scales all day, every day for weeks and you'd be great at it. Yeah, and then and then once once you get that like learning knowing how to like inject your personality and yeah. into it, um, so yeah, but it's hard. But, but I say that I regret that, but then at the same time, you know, we only have limited time as mm. in our childhood, and you know that maybe that means I never would have thrown myself into chess, and then like so much of my world would be different. My gosh, so much of your world, like, because how big a part of your world is chess? Like you said, your family's involved in it as well. It's something you've done for such a long time. Like what percentage of your life revolves around chess? Do you think? Um, well, you know, my husband doesn't does not play chess, so that makes mm-hmm. it a lot less. Um, and then also, obviously, I'm a, I'm a poker player, 
So mm-hmm. I'd say something like 50-50, but maybe um, when I was a kid, it was even more. Right. Maybe 70 okay, well, at its peak, you know, because I was yeah. always really excited about school and like writing and art projects, but um, chess was always there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We're going to finish up the first set of questions with a high note. The last question is, do you have a secret hunch about how you're going to die? It's not my question. I apologize. <laughs> um, probably a heart attack because I think, you know, when I talked about that NICU incident earlier, like I feel that there was something going on with my heart. They, I mean, I, I've been told everything's okay, but that's like um, a hunch because mm. I, I, I'm very, I, I'm very healthy, I think. Um, but right. I've noticed like that, and there's been, there have been heart attacks in, in my family. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. And unfortunately, it's just like, I'm a, I'm a math person. So it's just like, there's obviously a high percentage that you die that way, right? Yeah. Anybody really. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Second set of questions. If a crystal ball could tell you the truth about anything, your life, your future, something that's already happened, something that will happen, what would you want to know? All right. What would I want to know about the future? Um, the afterlife. I'd want to know um, mm. about that for sure. I mean, I'm not religious, but I would like to know about, you know, whether any fragment of our consciousness like remains mm. after death or if it just completely erased and wiped out. Mm-hmm. Does it, would it bother you if it was erased and wiped out? Because I'm not sure it bothers me. Sometimes I guess it does, but not genuinely, no. Not really, because I still think life is worth living and that, I mean, you you, you um, kind of, uh, by what you do and the energy and good work that you do mm-hmm. or don't do, you um, spread like happier experiences for other people. And I do mm-hmm. think that when people die, they... There's like, especially like soon after they die, like in the months and year after, I feel like their energy is spread and people mm. kind of embody, especially the people who are closest to them, they embody some of their best qualities. Yeah. That's a really beautiful way to look at it. I think that's true. Huh. Okay. Uh, next question. What does friendship mean to you? Do your closest friends tend to be the people that you've known for a long time? Uh, do you have a lot of friends outside of chess and poker in other areas of your life? Yeah, I'm really lucky. I'm still very close friends with like a very um, core group of my high school friends. And yeah, that's, it's wonderful to have friends that I've known Mm. for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's your most treasured memory? Um, Oh, well, the birth of my son. Oh, wow. It's also my most horrible memory. Yeah, I was (laughs) going to say. (laughs) Both. (laughs) Yeah. It definitely gets seared into your brain. I mean, <laughs> huh? Did did you have? Well, like I, didn't a- get, I didn't get. I didn't get drugs, which for me was like you know. Some people are like, yeah, I'm gonna go and have birth, and I'm gonna give a natural birth, and like all mm. power to that. But I was like the opposite. I remember we went to like a birthing class, and some women were going around the room saying how they wanted to be natural, and I was like, <laughs> I, I was I was a little irreverent. I said something about how I couldn't wait to get the drugs. <laughs> and of course, of course, I get punished for that. And I didn't actually end up getting any drugs. I, I really deserved it for saying that, huh? Um, <laughs> just, just couldn't get them in time. It was like a crazy time at the hospital and like things were progressing more quickly than expected. 
So, um, yeah, that was, so that was really, that was really, that was really tough. But then I think the thing is the body, um, has like all these natural endorphins, like that when it's over, mm-hmm. um, you're, you're, it's like the most euphoric experience ever, just in the same way that if like something really terrible almost happens to you when it's over, you feel like this rush of adrenaline. Yeah. Happiness. Yeah. Um, it's very it's- similar to that. Well, I mean, the pain stops and that is amazing. So it definitely helps with the euphoria I found. Yeah. I, uh, I actually did get the drugs, but they didn't work. I was so upset. It was deeply painful. And I was just really, I was really pissed off about the fact that the drugs didn't work and I'd actually, you know, had them done. Oh. And so it's also the matching emotions of like relief and, mm-hmm. you know, fear and re- fear when, and, you know, because I, Fear because I didn't know, um, it didn't seem like it was going well in some way. So I was like pretty oh. terrified. And then, of course, relief and joy. So it's, right. uh, it's, you know, it's not just about the chemicals in your body. It's also like the actual, you know, relief of everything going okay and having mm-hmm. your, your baby in your arms. Yeah. Did you find that you took to it pretty quickly? Like, I don't want to say naturally because, you know, a lot of women don't just take to being a, a mother straight away. And there's nothing unnatural about that. It's a, a really difficult thing to go through. So for you, was it kind of a quick bonding with your son or did it take a little bit of time? Oh yeah, it was very quick for me. I was like, nice. you know, I, I used to be very like, I used to be very cynical about um, parenthood. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I couldn't even believe some of the things I thought, like looking back on them, they were so insane. Like I used to think that <laughs> I used to think that I wanted a kid, but I wasn't really interested in the first three years and how awesome it could be if you could just like fast forward them and have like a a mini person. No, I really thought that. I was like, yeah, the first three years are going to be like kind of terrible and I'm going to hate it, but then I'll be really happy when I'm, when I have like an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old because they'll be a little human. And I mean, like looking back on the fact that I thought that and I was so confident that was true. It's like, Mm. now I just think it was just like so, so stupid of me to think that. <laughs> well, I don't think we know anything about it until we do it. It's one of those like bizarre, intense situations where you kind of can't even crowdsource the information on it because everybody's experience is pretty different. Yeah, and I, I had all kinds of ideas too that just completely didn't pan out whatsoever. So yeah, I get you on that. But it, it's good when it's a good memory for you. But mine was terrible. And I mean, thankfully it was a safe birth and everybody was fine. And and that was great. It was just, it was this really bizarre experience of giving birth in a, in a country where I didn't speak the language and where nobody, almost nobody there spoke my language. And it was just, everything was a little bit terrifying and kind of off-putting. And yeah, it was, uh, it, it was, it's a hard time of your life to not be able to tell what doctors are saying to you <laughs> and just kind of terrifying. So it was a great memory, but also a terrible memory for me, I think. But yeah, definitely yeah. memorable. Hmm. So what's one of your worst memories? Oh, um, well, you know, I uh, one of my worst memories would certainly be um, my mom died very suddenly. So mm. that's obviously a horrible memory because, you know. I'm you're, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I think you, it's, it's. Yeah, it just yeah, I came completely out of the blue. Right. I mean, she was a little sick, but like a flu sick, not like oh, you wow. know. Yeah. So I kind so I did kind of know when I got like a panicked call 
that it was that like it just kind of like instinctually I was like oh it was like more than a flu it was like oh. actually but um I I kind of I kind of had that instinct so I can't say it was like a hundred percent like of a shock at that point mm-hmm. but it was yeah like ninety nine percent extremely shocking um yeah. so yeah how old were you um gosh it was seven years ago oh wow so oh, like thirty really thirty two sorry yeah yeah. Yeah, it's hard to lose people so suddenly. That's um, yeah, you don't really get a chance to get your mind around it. I think in the same way. So, well, yeah, but in a way, I'm like in a way. If I had to pick, I my mom was very proud and like she didn't really like people to ever see her sick. She would always like mm-hmm. um, under um, understate like if she was feeling a little sick and try to just like power through it. And obviously, that's bad in a way because maybe she. Um, you know, maybe like this wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that. But it also, I feel like she would have wanted it that way, not to have people like pitying her for weeks, which I mm-hmm. which is terrible. I mean, it's just like it's really not good to pity people. They usually don't want that, right? Yeah. But it, how do you how do you avoid it? Because it, you know, it's like it's very human. If somebody's mm-hmm. sick and not feeling well, you you can't help but like feel sympathy for them, even if that's not really what they want. You don't want. Yeah. I want it. I think we don't really deal well with loss and grief also as a society. And I think we don't really know how to kind of reach out to people who are dealing with that. And I think that probably gets in the way too. And maybe that's what makes it easy to pity people, you know, if they're sick and they're you know terminally sick as well. Um, yeah. My sister was very ill when we were young and it, it looked like it was probably going to be terminal and it wasn't, thank God that was amazing. Um, but I, I remember how everybody used to, because you know, it was very long and drawn out as well. She had cancer and it, everybody would kind of treat it in this way of like, oh, I'm so sorry. And we're like, she's still here. <laughs> like that's, that's, I mean, I get that you're trying to help, but that's just not helpful. But I, I just don't think we understand as a society really kind of, we're so uncomfortable with it. Do you find that you're less uncomfortable with grief and loss now that you've had to deal with it? I think I know, I understand more about how, like one thing that really surprised me was that I felt like the fact that I had such a great relationship with my mom made it mm-hmm. easier to cope with her even very unexpected death, which was mm-hmm. a real solace. And, you know, feeling, I think I, I would have expected the opposite, that if you were really close, you'd be more devastated because you lost somebody that was so close to you and that you were on a on such a tight basis with. But it really was the opposite because then you felt like gratitude and relief that you were able to invest that time, you know? Hmm. Yeah. And also it taught me that grief is not linear. I think that's really important. And that, that's something mm-hmm. I always take with me, which is that um, if somebody has lost somebody very close to them and they don't feel bad and they want to go out for drinks and they want to go back to work, we should welcome it. We should support it. We shouldn't be like, yeah. oh, it's a little early for you to be doing that. Like, <laughs> Grief doesn't work that way. Like that person could be like having an amazing time. And then like five years later when they have their first child, they could be like devastated because the kid doesn't mm-hmm. have a grandparent. So it's yeah. like, it's, this is a like a lifelong thing to deal with. And a lot of times if you're dealing with it, um, well, savor that mm-hmm. until it stops. Yeah. Yeah. It's worth interrogating. I think why we need people to show grief in a way to be appropriate I uh, I don't know. I think we as a culture kind of put a really high 
value on a certain kind of sadness that's, you know, um, easy to see and easy to understand rather than that kind of more complicated, nonlinear kind of grief, like you say. So, yeah. Okay. Well, another question here, getting away from that, um, share with your partner an embarrassing moment in your life. So what, what, uh, what's a good time when you were very embarrassed? Give me a good story. Oh gosh. Um, let's see. I, I, my mind definitely kind of jumps to, um, public speaking fails or, Oof. you know, technological fails. Let <laughs> me <laughs> just think of a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, Mis- oh, mi- mispronouncing, like, but let me think, like, I'm really embarrassing. I feel like you've answered this one on one of your episodes, right? Hmm. I think so. Yeah, I've mispronounced people's names. I once uh, congratulated the person who actually lost Heads Up. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> yeah, on oh, camera God. and everything. Yeah. Terrible. One time, like, I, uh, there was a a person with a disability that I um, mistook for another person with that same disability. And I just Uh felt so horrible because it was also, they were smart. So it was like obvious to them, like why I made that mistake. Yeah. It's like so hard to recover from something like that. I'm just so, so embarrassed. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you know, you sometimes, you you know, like that's the thing about embarrassment. Sometimes you just have to like move on and like realize Mm -hmm. that you probably really offended the person and fucked up and just yep. not do it again. Yeah. Sometimes it's a good lesson. I kind of try to do that myself and not, yeah. If I, if I name it, if I say it out loud and kind of don't just get so embarrassed that I bury it really deep, then at least I'll learn from it. That's, that's my theory anyways. I don't know if it's true. Yeah. All right. Okay. So another one here, have you ever been truly terrified Oh yeah, lots of times. Unfortunately, I mean, mm. I've been uh, terrified. Um, there was one time when I was playing a poker tournament in a loft in Brooklyn, and I I tripped over a wire, and like you know, I I, I was like you know diving towards a concrete floor, and I was mm-hmm. so lucky because I my body somehow managed to like triangulate to a sofa, which is incredible. <gasps> I mean. Jesus, the instincts that you have when you're, oh. um, when your life is in danger are insane. But it was just like really weird mind body experience after that because my body felt like it was almost about to die. So I was like shaking. Oh. I was like shaking for like 10 minutes, but I was actually mm-hmm. totally fine. Like I was, nothing had happened because of oh. what yeah. So it was this we- super weird mind body connection. Mm-hmm. Um, I also was in Turkey. I was the only, I was in the suburbs of Turkey working on my first book, actually, Chess Bitch. And um, I was went to this like chess tournament there, and I took a bus somewhere in the in the suburbs of Istanbul, and I was the only woman on the bus. And mm. I asked about my stop, and then like I thought the stop was still coming, but everybody started getting off the bus, and then I realized they were the bus was taking me to like an empty parking lot, and oh, like you know, so we I had missed my stop. Yeah. So that was really terrifying when I like pieced together that like that was happening. And again, like though you're, you're, it's amazing the instincts that come in when you are terrified mm-hmm. like that. Because in retrospect, I think like I acted quite perfectly because somehow I managed to get out of the bus and run away. <laughs> Which is, you know, in, in where do you run to right? in the suburbs of Istanbul when you well, don't know where you are? That's terrifying. 
Well, I was on the right bus. So it had, uh-huh. it was like, you know, it just said instead of, so I, I, I it, and I don't, I remember it wasn't that far. Like it, they, okay. it, they went like, a, you know, maybe like a, a mile past my stop, you know, it mm-hmm. wasn't like you know, 20 miles past my hotel stop. So once I was out of the bus and running, I was like pretty safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, we're so lucky that we have smartphones, honestly, like to be able to go on GPS for most places in the world and kind of see where you are and where you need to turn to get to a road or whatever, or to be able to call for help. Like, honestly, I think we're so lucky. <laughs> Did you yeah, have that phone with you? Is that no, what I kind of were? I don't even think I oh, had a cell phone. No, that was before. Oh. I think. Yeah. Or maybe I, maybe I had one, but I don't know. Like it was one of those things back in those days. Like they yeah, didn't always have the same <laughs> They didn't work internationally, I don't think. It was yeah. maybe it worked in New York City where I live, but it didn't work internationally. So yeah, that was that was terrifying. And then there are like small moments of like mock terror in poker and chess, which are funny because they actually kind of like physiologically they feel like the real thing. Mm. <laughs> you know, of course, it's not not at all the same. Yeah. Yeah. But your body has that response. I mean, like a stress response is a stress response, no matter whether it's like you're worried you're going to get called when you really don't want to get called or you're like running around the suburbs of Istanbul by yourself. Yeah. Your body doesn't know the difference. I was mugged at gunpoint too once. That's obviously scary. Oh, man. It's yeah, scary when you have a gun in your face. And I think I yeah. acted really well in that one too. I just really instinctively looked down, which I think is always mm-hmm. really good in those situations because you don't want mm-hmm. people to think that you're identifying them later. So that one worked out well, too, um, in that I was completely unscathed. Um, I'm not sure if they actually caught the person or not. But, um, yeah, that was so long ago. It was a very long time ago. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, so I – yeah, I've had had a number. And there's some others, and I'm not even – I mean, there's so many. I think you you Mm -hmm. mentioned in one of your podcasts that you've been terrified so many times in your life. (laughs) And I'm sure there's – We've been terrified of a lot more, you know, like dangerous jobs and things like that, where Mm -hmm. you're really um, dealing with it on a a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Yeah. I I think the whole like traveling by yourself thing, we're going to run into that as women as well, you know, especially when when we were both younger. It can be a little terrifying, you know, these sorts of things kind of come up and you just learn how to I don't know, like not let them roll off you, but you learn how to make the right choices and run as fast as you can or, you know, whatever you have to do. Like I remember being in what I thought was a a hire car, a taxi that I'd been got that had been gotten for me from a a producer for a TV show I'd just finished. And it was in the middle of the night and they were supposed to be taking me back to my house, which was like an hour's drive away from the studio. And it was, I think, one in the morning. And I got a phone call from the producer while I'm in the car and they're like, your car's here. Where are you? And I was like, I'm in the car that was waiting outside for me where the guy said my name. And then I got in the car <laughs> and she just freaked out on the phone and she was like, to ask him for his badge number, which I did. And she said, well, they say they don't have that badge number. That's not a valid badge number. And then at some point she said, here, just hand the phone to him because I need to speak to him. And for some stupid reason I did. And then I was just sitting in the back seat of this car thinking, I just handed this man my phone. Are you, how insane am I? And so, yeah, uh, thankfully he did hand it back to me. Didn't say another word to me except for, um, what did you even say? It was something like, I wasn't, yeah, I, I don't even remember what it was. And then he dropped me off at an airport and sped away. And I was just, I remember I almost threw up. I like jumped out of the car as soon as he stopped and I just about, and I like bent over double and thought, I'm going to throw up. 
but I didn't. And then I went home and that was it. And nothing yeah. ever happened. Like, I, and it was just terrifying, but you're just like, okay, if I have to, as soon as he slows, I'm going to grab the seatbelt and try to wrap it around his neck, or maybe I'm going to kick or like your mind just goes through all the like, okay, you know, this is what I'm going to do. You know, I do my best here. Let's see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's, that's scary. That case of like mistaken car with like Uber. Seems like the safety on that is has gotten better. The only time I got into the wrong car in an Uber was like in the parking lot of a poker tournament after busting. And um, I, I at first I was terrified, but then the the person in the car was terrified because they were smoking weed on break, and they like oh. was like an undercover cop or something. <laughs> and then I, I actually recognized them from poker, and I was like, "Oh hi!" And he's like, "Yeah, I'm oh. not your Uber." <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, well, we're going to close off with our last question. So your house with everything that you own catches fire. After saving all of your loved ones and your pets, you have time to make one final dash to save any one item. What would it be? Oh, it would have to be either my phone or laptop for like some of the photos that I haven't properly backed up of my son. No, (laughs) you need to do that. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I do. Oh, I'm not man. very. I'm not very materialistic. I don't have a lot of like family heirlooms. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think that. Um, yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Probably it would be something uh, technological. Yeah. 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 Well, they hold all our memories now, so it's kind of hard if we're not putting everything in the cloud. And honestly, I don't know why I'm scolding you because I don't back up to the cloud. (laughs) So if my house actually burnt down, I mean, we have like a fireproof safe and I would hope that that would actually protect all my photos, but let's be honest, it probably wouldn't do it. So we should both be backing up to the cloud. Come on, get it, get it done. We don't want to lose these photos. I think I would cry my eyes out if I lost all these photos. Yeah, definitely. Me too. Okay. Well, that is our time. That went really fast. And we actually had to skip over a whole bunch of questions that I kind of wanted to ask. So (laughs) I'd have to get you to do a second episode because we didn't nearly scratch the surface. But thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. I definitely owe you a drink. You know, if we ever get back to Vegas at some point, here's hoping. (laughs) Was that okay for you? Not too probing? Yeah, yeah, it was great. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's exciting that, um, Maybe we will get to see each other again one day oh, soon. So. Be part of my perfect day. We could Aww. get heads up, heads up in that turbo tournament, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, go have some wine after. Yeah, four hours of poker, a little, a little uh, wine and good conversation. Sounds yeah. sounds like an amazing future. And I think when <sighs> we get back together, everybody's going to really appreciate it so much. Yeah, I think you're right, and that actually does sound pretty incredible a few hours in the morning with the family some poker some friend time some wine let's make it happen if we ever do get back to vegas i am booking you in for that all right well thank you so much for coming on um and thank you everybody for listening as well i hope you really enjoyed getting to know this remarkable person from a new angle from a lot of different new angles and uh, yeah make sure that you join us next time here on the heart of poker 